Hello, friends, and welcome once again to the Unknown Friends podcast for the final episode of season three. It has been a long time coming, but today we are finally wrapping up the season with my review of That Hideous Strength, which is the last book in C.S. Lewis's Space Trilogy. As always, I am your host, Rochelle Ferguson of Kitty Wayne Productions, and I'm honored that you're here listening to this episode. Our previous two episodes covering books one and two of the Space Trilogy came out a while ago, but hopefully not so long ago that the material we discussed is totally beyond the reach of memory. In our episode on Out of the Silent Planet, we talked about the unexpectedness of Oxford Dawn C.S. Lewis writing science fiction novels, and deeply Christian science fiction at that. We discussed the competing philosophies that Lewis illuminates in the book, Dr. Weston's uh, atheistic evolutionary philosophy versus Ransom's, and Lewis's own, Christian worldview that affirms the intrinsic value of all life. Then in our episode on book two, Paralandra, we considered the intense battle between good and evil that Lewis portrays. He explores themes of innocence and temptation and redemption in a powerful way in Paralandra. And we also briefly discussed the influence of Dante's Divine Comedy on the structure and imagery of the Space Trilogy, which is just a fascinating topic that I wish we could look into further, but I don't think there will be time today. In this episode, we're headed in a different direction as we discuss that hideous strength, which is noticeably distinct in its storytelling from the first two books of the trilogy. Our main characters shift, our narrator seems to shift, our setting and plot structure are both very different, Almost everything about the style of That Hideous Strength is unlike that of the first two books. But that's not a bad thing. I think for the stories Lewis was telling in books one and two, he chose a very fitting approach, but then in book three, the story and characters he develops are much more complicated and diverse, and he needed to adjust his writing style to best serve the story he wanted to tell in That Hideous Strength. So, whereas Dr. Elwyn Ransom is our hero in books one and two, he is only a side character in book three. We actually have two main characters in book three, a husband and wife, Mark and Jane Studdick, who we've never met in the first two books. In fact, the vast majority of the characters in That Hideous Strength are new. Uh, Dr. Ransom, of course, we've known previously, as well as the character Dick Devine, who was one of Ransom's kidnappers in book one. He makes a reappearance in That Hideous Strength. But other than that, we have a completely new cast of characters. Also unlike the first two books, That Hideous Strength involves no interplanetary space travel, uh, no encounters with alien species. This book is firmly grounded on Earth, although spiritual warfare is just as much reality here as it was on Venus or Mars for Dr. Ransom. But this story doesn't appear so dramatic at the beginning. 
The book opens, introducing us to Mark and Jane Studdick, a young couple with no children. They're both academics. Mark is a professor of sociology at a small institution called Bracton College, and Jane is trying to finish her dissertation on the works of the poet John Donne. Although since getting married, she can't seem to muster the motivation to finish her PhD. Now, we learn that a large, important organization called the National Institute for Coordinated Experiments, or NICE for short, uh, is wanting to buy some land from Bracton College to expand its operations. And the NICE also seems to be on the lookout for new employees to join their cause. Now, what their cause is, nobody quite knows. Supposedly, the NICE is making the world a better place, but it's a bit of a mystery how they're actually working toward that end. Uh, but at any rate, Mark Sedek is kind of unofficially invited to visit the NICE headquarters and perhaps take a job there. And Mark is very honored and enthusiastic about this possibility. So he goes, he meets some of the leaders of the NICE, and on the whole, they're quite welcoming. However, Mark finds it very difficult to get any clarity on what kind of a position he's actually being offered, or what kind of work the NICE is actually doing and wanting him to participate in. And if anything, things just get vaguer rather than clearer the longer his visit becomes. More and more mysteries and peculiarities and secrets come to his attention. But the thing is, while on the one hand this confuses Mark and at times makes him almost decide to head home and forget all about it, on the other hand, Mark has always been intrigued and attracted by secrets. He is deeply motivated by a desire to be in the know and not to be excluded. So that keeps him at least for a while, willing to put up with some unpleasant things at the NICE in the hopes that here he can be part of something special and mysterious and important. Jane, meanwhile, is having very different experiences while Mark is away at the NICE headquarters. She has been disturbed lately by nightmares. And not just any old nightmares, but very strange ones. Dreams that should not be possible in the natural order of things. Uh, so in one, she witnesses the death of a man she's never seen before. And then she sees that man's picture in the next day's newspaper with the report of his death. She starts seeing things happen in her dreams that are truly happening or about to happen in real life. But of course, by all rights, she should have no knowledge of these events. Eventually, she gets so confused and frightened by these nightmares that she takes the advice of a friend and goes to see a specialist to try to work through, you know, what's going on in her mind and hopefully find a cure for the dreams. But to her disappointment, she is told there is no cure. Instead of being offered a remedy, she's invited to join a small group of people who claim that they can be of help to her in other ways. And she soon learns that this group is also working sort of undercover against the NICE, the institution where Mark is looking for a job. 
which is a bit awkward, um, especially once Jane does decide to join this group and learns quickly to like these people quite a lot. So Mark and Jane move in opposite directions, joining two different organizations whose purposes are diametrically opposed, we eventually learn. And ultimately, both of them are called to put their whole trust in the philosophy of their organization, to surrender to its purpose. And Mark and Jane must each decide whether the people they've come to know are worthy of their trust, or whether these people represent causes to which they're willing to commit themselves. And in each case, the stakes are very high because, as we eventually discover, Mark's and Jane's choices will determine not only their own fates, but also the fate of everyone around them. And the spiritual battle escalates dramatically, and we witness not just a philosophical war, but truly a cosmic war. Men and women and beasts are all fighters in it, kings and visionaries, uh, ancient power and modern artificial life, even angels and devils all come together in this monumental clash between good and evil. And Mark and Jane, astonishingly, are at the center of it all. Now, there are many ways to read that hideous strength, in that there are many different lines of thought you can focus on. In this one story, Lewis offers a vivid critique of modern politics and education, he also explores the meaning of marriage and gender. He um, analyzes weaknesses of the human mind and heart, especially pride in various forms. And meanwhile, he is combining satire and theology with medieval cosmology and Arthurian legend and biblical narratives like the Tower of Babel story. So he's doing a huge and intricate work in that hideous strength. And so it's impossible to discuss all the aspects of the novel in one review. Um, but I'll try to focus on some of the themes that I think are most important and interesting. C.S. Lewis's own brief description of what the book is about can be found in his short preface to that hideous strength, in which he simply says that the story quote, has behind it a serious point which I have tried to make in my abolition of man, end quote. Obviously, then, we will have to refer to Lewis's book, The Abolition of Man, to discover what the point of that hideous strength is. So The Abolition of Man is a short work of nonfiction that Lewis wrote right about the same time that he was writing That Hideous Strength, so it makes a lot of sense that the two works share themes. Originally, the text of The Abolition of Man formed the content of three lectures Lewis delivered in February of 1943, and they were then published together in one short volume. Now, many other reviewers and critics have uh, expounded on the meaning of The Abolition of Man much better than I can, um, but I will do my best to give a short summary of Lewis's argument. He suggests that human beings are tripartite creatures, creatures with a head, a heart, and a stomach, or in other words, with intellect, affection, and appetite. 
And Lewis begins the abolition of man with a critique of the modern educational system, which tries to train children not to have or believe in values. It tries to train them to follow reason and science strictly, without reference to values or morals, even though morality gives us the only possible basis for reason at all. But the school system essentially tries to teach children to be governed purely by their brains, but what ends up happening is that they instead become governed purely by their appetites, because the intellect and the appetite are generally at war with one another, and the appetite is generally stronger. People may be given all the head knowledge they could possibly get, but if that's all they're given, they will still be controlled by their appetite, even if that means living in constant, direct contradiction with what their intellect knows to be true. The heart, or affections, or values, is the part of a human being that links the head and the stomach, and can moderate between them. The part that can inform and guide both, if properly trained itself. Now, the heart is not naturally good or moral, Lewis makes clear, but that should be the end of a quality education, to train a child's heart or values, to shape a child's loves and hates in harmony with the moral law that shapes our lives and the whole universe we inhabit. If our loves are not trained in this way, then we'll live our lives in painful friction against the fabric of reality. And that ultimately is exactly how the philosophy of modern education teaches students to live. Because we are being taught that moral values aren't real, that everything is relative, which is an endlessly self-contradictory philosophy, and it has filled the world and continues to fill it with human beings that are, in Lewis's words, men without chests, people with head and stomach, but no heart, with educated brains, yes, but ones that are entirely at the mercy of their uneducated, unrestrained desires. Without the aid of trained emotions, Lewis writes, the intellect is powerless against the animal organism. It's essential that we train our children's emotions. And of course, we should be simultaneously training their intellect and their desires, but we cannot neglect their values, their likes and dislikes, loves and hates, or our efforts to shape their thinking will be absolutely in vain. So, in my view, that is the basic argument of the abolition of man. And the book's title comes from the point Lewis makes that, ultimately, as this philosophy takes over our world, the end result is that the very part of our being that makes us most human is being abolished. We're becoming animals in our subservience to our appetites. And that's a pretty terrifying prospect. Now, in that hideous strength, Lewis has the opportunity to show tangibly what this philosophy of relativism and the abolition of man looks like in real life. 
our heroes, Mark and Jane, are both, to some extent, products of the flawed educational system that Lewis censures in The Abolition of Man. Um, Mark, especially, has never had uh, emotional training, you could say. He was never taught what was good or bad, because, of course, those are old-fashioned, meaningless, completely subjective terms, right? Well, after experiencing bad things for a long enough time, Mark eventually starts to think there may be something more solid to the idea of badness than he ever gave much credit to before. And hand in hand with that, maybe goodness is a real thing, a solid, strong, and beautiful thing that he was never taught to think about before, much less to love and pursue. And over time, Mark and Jane separately experience real evil and real good, and their experiences open their eyes to the real moral nature of the world that they used not to believe in. And ultimately, they begin to learn to dislike what is evil and to like or even love what is good. And that is the best kind of education they could receive. Now, hand in hand with that learning, Mark and Jane are also being educated on another topic, which is, I think, the second main theme of that hideous strength. It may be surprising given the storyline of the book about evil organizations and visionary dreams and ancient wizards brought back to life. But as much as anything else, that hideous strength is ultimately about marriage. Matrimony is actually the first word of the book. Chapter one opens depicting Jane alone in her and Mark's home with a dreary day stretching ahead of her, and she calls to mind the words of her and Mark's marriage ceremony six months earlier. The first sentence of that hideous strength goes like this. Matrimony was ordained thirdly, said Jane Stuttick to herself, for the mutual society, help, and comfort that the one ought to have of the other. And then uh, two paragraphs later, after a brief description from the narrator of how lonely Jane's days tend to be while Mark's away at work, Jane bitterly repeats the phrase, mutual society, help, and comfort. And the narrator says, in reality, marriage had proved to be the door out of a world of work and comradeship and laughter and innumerable things to do into something like solitary confinement. And throughout the following chapters of the book, we readers very quickly realize that there seems to be pretty much nothing mutual about Mark and Jane's relationship. They don't understand each other. They clearly don't know how to love and mutually serve each other. And they don't even seem to share many interests or values. Well, as a matter of fact, neither of them seems to have many interests or values, which Lewis shows is a result of the modern valueless philosophy that they've both been taught. So these are our main characters, a young couple about to step into cosmic spiritual warfare unbeknownst to them, but at the same time, they're in the middle of their own personal crisis. They've been married just long enough to be disillusioned with marriage, but neither of them has any idea what went wrong or how to fix it. 
But if they're willing to learn, each of them come under the influence of people who have startlingly different philosophies from what Mark and Jane are used to. And for good or ill, these people want to change the way Mark and Jane think. And what is eventually revealed is that humility is the first and foremost thing that this couple needs. Humility toward God and humility toward each other, and a mutual submission to God and to each other. This simple change of thinking, simple but monumental, will help Mark and Jane individually find peace and contentment, and of course, it will also help heal their marriage and allow them to flourish together if they maintain this mindset of humility and surrender. Lewis argues that humility and obedience lead to love, not the other way around, which is an important distinction. All this brings to mind one of the reasons I love Lewis's writing so much. It doesn't matter whether he's writing a trilogy about interplanetary space travel or children's books about kings and queens and talking animals, his focus never wanders from the reality of human souls in daily life. That's what it's all about. The human heart and mind and how it relates to God and to other human beings. Yes, Lewis loves medieval imagery and mythology. He loves breathtaking landscapes and fantastical creatures. But when it comes down to it, these are all just tools or paths, perhaps, that he loves to use to lead his readers to the truth about ourselves. That's why that hideous strength can be about, you know, politics and educational philosophy and interplanetary conflict. But at the same time, it's just as much, if not more, about a very ordinary man and woman who are young and proud and don't have a clue how to live a good life or have a good marriage. And the process of mercifully undoing Mark and Jane's pride and ignorance is just as important to Lewis as elucidating the deep mysteries of philosophy. And in the process, Lewis is exceptionally good at getting into the heads of his characters and showing us the world from their all-too-human perspective. And I don't just mean Mark's perspective, I mean Jane's, too. Um, I think that Lewis writes from a woman's perspective extraordinarily well, all things considered. Uh, Jane in That Hideous Strength and Orwell from Till We Have Faces are the main two examples of a female perspective that we have in his writings. And in both cases, I think it's insightful and on the whole pretty accurate how he depicts their thoughts and feelings. Now, obviously, that's not to say that a person's perspective is completely and only defined by their gender. There are lots of different types of women, lots of different types of men, and there's much more to a person's personality or mindset than just their gender. One thing that has always stood out to me about that hideous strength is that Mark and Jane ultimately become examples to the reader of 
two very different kinds of people in a way that's, you know, maybe affected by their gender, but not at all limited to that. Both of them have a kind of pride in their souls that is the root of their struggles in life and in their marriage, but the pride takes two very different forms. So Mark has an obsession with being in the know, or in the inner ring, as Lewis says. Mark is desperate uh, to be included. He can't stand the idea of being an outsider. And it's no coincidence, of course, that Lewis delivered a lecture called The Inner Ring in 1944, the year before that hideous strength was published. Uh, it's an important topic that was on his mind. Jane, on the other hand, has a kind of pride that pushes her in the opposite direction. She has a pride of independence, a feeling of uh, superiority and distrust that causes her to stay on the outside of things intentionally. She hates bandwagons and stereotypes, at least in theory. And she hates the idea of being drawn into someone else's program or agenda. So they really have these opposite tendencies. And to be freed from their different kinds of pride, Mark has to learn that being an outsider can be good, and Jane has to learn that being an insider can be good. And, you know, I should add, with regard to Mark, Lewis shows us ultimately that when Mark stops desperately striving to be in the inner ring and chooses to be content on the outside, he soon finds himself in little inner rings of his own that he never expected. Friendships. And, I mean, his marriage are sort of little uh, secret societies that he never valued before, but he eventually realizes are the most meaningful inner rings that he could dream of. Seek your life and you shall lose it. Lose your life and you shall find it. It's one of the most essential truths of the gospel. And we see it played out beautifully in Mark and Jane's lives. When Mark finally allows himself to be an outsider, he suddenly finds himself an insider. When Jane surrenders the independence she has always clung to, she finds more freedom and flourishing in her life than ever before. Well, we are probably to the point where I need to wrap this up. So let me just say in summary that the Space Trilogy and That Hideous Strength in particular is one of my favorite stories I've ever read. Uh, favorite not just because it's interesting to read, but because it illuminates reality and convicts and challenges me. I have lost track by now of the number of times I've reread the Space Trilogy, and I know I've given That Hideous Strength more rereadings even than the first two books. So I highly recommend this trilogy for high schoolers or older, and if you enjoy the works of C.S. Lewis but haven't yet given the Space Trilogy a try, you are truly missing out. That Hideous Strength, especially, I think is one of Lewis's best works of fiction. So give it a read, or maybe a reread, and I promise you, you won't be disappointed. Thank you again for listening to the podcast. I deeply appreciate the support and enthusiasm you all have shown through the three seasons of Unknown Friends, and it's a little bittersweet 
to be closing this last episode of season three since I don't have clear plans for a season four at this point. Time will tell. I may be able to return for another season eventually if my schedule opens up for it, but at this point I can't make any promises so I'm not going to try. But thank you all for being such faithful listeners and friends, even if we've never met. Reading brings us unknown friends, right? And we have shared a lot of books, a lot of discussions over the last three years, and I think that forges a kind of friendship. So thank you, I appreciate you, and I hope both you and I keep finding new unknown friends among the many stories that have been written to show us what is good and true and beautiful. 